About 16 years ago, right after I had first been asked to take on the role of deacon, I had my first tangible experience with spiritual warfare. Now, those of you who know me well or have listened to me over the years know that I tend towards the side of the theological spectrum that asks a lot of skeptical questions before I will agree that something is supernatural. Now, this, that's, that's kind of why uh, this story sticks out in my mind and why this situation made such a strong impact on my understanding of Christ as our king and spiritual warfare. You see, a young man came in in the beginning of a midweek service and asked to speak with our associate pastor. He wanted some help. And as our associate pastor was walking over to the man, he grabbed me and said, come with me. I think he wanted some coverage in the, the meeting. And so I went and sat down with the associate pastor, this person who brought this man and the young man. He told us his story a week or two prior He had ingested some drugged up brownies that had been laced with something, and ever since then, he had been hearing voices telling him to harm himself and others, and he couldn't get rid of the voices. He only had one of the brownies and had nothing since then, and yet the voices were persisting. After talking with him for a while, the associate pastor said to him something along the lines of, I think this is actually a demonic issue, and we know that where Christ dwells, the demonic has no power. So he looked at him and he said, do you want to confess Christ as your Savior? And and the man said, I'll do anything to get rid of these voices. And so he said, yes, please help me. So the associate pastor told him to repeat after him and began a prayer of confession. And the man was able to repeat it. And I'm sitting in awe as somewhat of a new leader in the church and honestly somewhat of a new Christian. Um, Then the associate pastor got to a phrase that included the words, Lord Jesus. And there was silence. Now, as any good Sunday school kid does, I peeked one eye open to see what was going on, right, to figure out why it was so silent. And it was at that point, and I tell you in 100% confidence and assurance that this is true, I looked over and I saw the man's head twitching to the side with his eyes closed, and he said, I can't, I can't, I can't say that name, right? He said it in a voice that was not his normal voice. The pastor calmed him down, and we talked some more, and then he left the church, and unfortunately, I do not fully know what happened to him. In that moment, I got one of my first major glimpses at the power and authority of the name Jesus of Nazareth as Lord, and I understood that there was and is a spiritual dimension that is operating behind all that occurs in the physical plane, and I've had many other situations like that, and again, you guys know me. I'm a counselor by trade. I'm learning to be a counselor, right? I I operate on that side of the spectrum where I'm going to ask all the questions about their sleep habits, their exercise, what they're on, their medication, their pathology, their family history, right? Their family system, who they're dating, right? Maybe that's making them crazy. I don't know, right? (laughs) But I'm going to ask all those questions before I get to the place where I say, okay, I think that the one thing left is that this is a spiritual issue, And so this actually occurs. There's a dimension operating behind what occurs on the physical plane. But it wasn't until partway into planting mission and learning from a number of really great professors on this topic that I started to put together the themes of spiritual warfare on the one side and kingdom authority on the other. Once that understanding was in place, I could begin to see the Bible so much more clearly as a story of kingdoms warring over authority rather than ghost stories. In that moment with that young man so many years ago, I was not just seeing some aberration of spiritual activity as as if I was looking at ghosts, but I was getting a glimpse into the warfare occurring between two vastly different kingdoms, two vastly different authorities, one of darkness and one of light. 
one led by the prince of the power of the air, Hasatan, the adversary of God, the accuser of all, and the other led by the creator God himself, who has given that power over to his son, Jesus Christ. Now, for us to understand the narrative of Scripture, as we are seeing in Mark, we must go through that same transformation where we do not see stories of Jesus battling with demons as biblical ghost stories, but we see them as they are, unapologetic declarations of the reigning power of Jesus Christ as king. To read these stories correctly is not to view them as user manuals on spiritual gifts. It's not to read them as user manuals on exorcisms but rather to read them as Christ-centered statements that the kingdom of God means a king ruling a people. And Jesus is that king. This morning, as we look at Mark 1, 21 through 28, and then Mark 2, 1 through 12, we will see this theme in big, bold font. In both of these sections, we will be assisted in understanding one thing, and that is the authority of the king in the kingdom of God. You can write that down if you take notes. That's the title for this morning, The Authority of the King in the Kingdom of God. Remember that Mark is meant to be read aloud with repetitive themes captured in the mind of the hearer. And so these sections very clearly go together, and the hearer would hear them repeated. So let's take a look at them now, and we're going to see how similar they are. Take a look at Mark 121. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had, what's that word there? Authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they, what's the word there? Obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 1. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.'" Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has, what's that word there? authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So here we have two very similar accounts in structure. 
Notice that they're both centered in Capernaum, both display Christ teaching about the kingdom of God. What he said he came to teach about was that kingdom. And then subsequently, what happens is he displays that same authoritative power. He speaks the kingdom, and then he acts the kingdom. Both are combating a piece of the kingdom of darkness. One is a direct assault on a citizen of the kingdom of darkness, a demon. And the other is a proxy war against the injustice wrought by the kingdom of darkness through the brokenness of sin. Both are seemingly in conflict with the scribes as well. So what are these two sections communicating? Well, we can surmise that these fit into the overall question that the book of Mark asks, which is, who do you say that Jesus is? That's really what they're asking there. Instead of what is this, we'll see in a little bit, they're asking, who is this guy? Right? What is going on here? But if we look at the structures of chapter 1 and 2, I believe we will see that he is the king in the kingdom of God. Now, let me show you what I mean. How many of you remember the word chiasm? I've shown this to you many times, those of you who've been here a while. Okay, Kyle does. Does anybody else remember? All right, good. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks. That, that encourages anybody. The chiasm is this literary structure that's in a lot of ancient literature, especially Hebrew and Greek, and it's a structure that's broken down in this pattern of A, B, C, B, A, and it would be giving themes through its bookends of A and its center theme of C there. Well, if we look at uh, the first part of Mark that we've been taking a look at, you're going to see a chiasm, okay? Now, this is a slide that'll be up online. I know our slides haven't been online. I got to fix that this week, but this will be up and you can take a look at it. So don't feel like you have to write all this down. But notice that Mark 1, 14 through 15 declares that Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. And this leads us to the question, well, what is the kingdom? You didn't give us much description, but that's what the entire rest of the following section is about. Because we've been studying this in Isaiah and Matthew and Ephesians, we can answer that a kingdom is a king ruling over a people, right? Repeat it with me. A kingdom is a king ruling over a people. So the kingdom of God must be God ruling over his people, but we need more clarification. And so we turn to this section of Mark, because what we're going to see in the first few sections of text after that statement that he preaches the kingdom of God is this pattern. Mark 1, 16 through 20, and then again in 2, 13 through 17, as we learned last week, speak about the people of the kingdom that are called to follow the king. These are the people of the kingdom. Come and follow me. I will make you fishers of men. In Mark 1, 21 through 28, and then 2, verses 1 through 12, as we will see this week, we're talking about the authority of the king over those people in the kingdom of God. In Mark 1, 29 through 34, and then again in Mark 1, 40 through 45, as we will see next week, we see the character of the kingdom of God, restoration, reconciliation, redemption, and the actions that Jesus takes in order to bring that character across. And at the center of this chiasm, in Mark 1, 35 through 39, which we partially already went over, he speaks that he came with the mission to preach the kingdom of God and to example it through a show of his authority as king. Through this structure, and go home and take this with you and take a look at it, and you're going to see it very plainly in your face. Through this structure, we see that the bookends are the calling of the people to participate in the focus, the mission of God, by evidencing the character of the kingdom under the authority of Christ. So we get a base understanding that the kingdom of God is this. It's a people proclaiming the kingdom by reflecting the character of the king in submission to his reign. That's a lot of words, but 
That's what the kingdom is. A people proclaiming the kingdom by reflecting the character of the king in submission to his reign. And we can only do this because the Holy Spirit that dwells within his church and unites us to him in the mission of God and assists us in fighting back our flesh that wants to stay with the kingdom of darkness. So now that you see the structure of the surrounding context and the main theme for today, perhaps you'll be able to see the authority of Christ through each of the lenses we're going to look at in our text today. So the first lens that we're going to take a look at today, hopefully you got enough time to write that slide down there. The first lens we're going to see today is this. As the Holy One of God, Jesus has authority to teach the kingdom of God. As the Holy One of God, Jesus has authority to teach the kingdom of God. You see, by this point in time, the scribes had it nailed. They were like, we got this, we understand it, we understand all the law, our interpretations are solid. Nobody can come at this point and teach us anything new. And then this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, shows up. We enter back into the story there in Capernaum, back in chapter 1, and Capernaum is this small little fishing village. Again, you'd think, well, if the guy's going to change the religion or give them a different interpretation, he'd probably go to Jerusalem and speak to the highest of the high, right? The Pharisees of the Pharisees, the scribes. But he's here in this tiny little fishing village. Now, Capernaum was a village on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's the lowest body of fresh water on the planet, 680 feet below sea level. And its name in Hebrew is Kephar Nahum, right? That's Capernaum. Kephar Nahum means the village of Nahum, but it's not Nahum the prophet. Just some guy named Nahum who established the village. It was a fishing village that was large enough, possibly upwards of about 10,000 people at the time of Jesus. And we see in the other Gospels that it had a detachment of Roman troops, a customs post, an official a resident Roman official. So there was something happening in Capernaum. And you can still go there today today and see many of the basalt stones used to make up the foundations of the homes. You can even go and see where the Byzantines built a church around what they thought was Peter's home, right? And you can also walk around the ruins of this fourth century synagogue that's there. It's a beautiful, beautiful set of ruins, the synagogue. And underneath this synagogue or this gathering place, that's what the word synagogue means, you can find the older basalt stones dating back even farther that may likely have been the foundation. See those dark stones on the bottom there? Those may have been the foundations of the actual synagogue into which Jesus entered. And to understand what is going on here in this section in Mark 1.21, well, you have to know that the worship in the synagogue was usually a prayer, a reading of scripture, a sermon which exposited the text, and benediction. Sounds kind of familiar, right? That's how a synagogue service would have been run. In Jesus' day, there was no ordained rabbinic class, and so synagogues operated by the leadership of lay people. And so you had to be known by the leaders, and you had to be trusted, and you had to be seen as a teacher in order to teach. So the fact that Jesus is even teaching shows us most likely that he was known by the people in this area, that he was already in some capacity ministering. But as he is teaching, he starts to speak things that were not in line with the scribes, kind of like, you know, I'm the Messiah. It's a little bit out of line, right? And it says that they were astonished and overwhelmed at his teaching. His grasp of the Torah and his way of speaking it was as if he were the author of the Torah. He taught as one who had authority. That's the word author in authority. He's the author of it, not as the scribes. He didn't teach as a regurgitation of information, kind of like I do, right? I'll be honest about that. I am not the author of the Torah, right? 
you're going to get a certain level of authority from me because I have a grasp of Scripture to a certain extent, but for the most part, I'm regurgitating from men and women that I've learned from. But Jesus wasn't like that. And this makes sense because if he is God incarnate, he is the one who originally wrote the law. And for example, the gospel according to Matthew in chapters 5 through 7, you guys know the Sermon on the Mount, the Mount of Olives, uh, the discourse there, it paints Jesus as the better lawgiver, the new Moses, going up on the mount like at Sinai and giving the law to the people. And there in his sermon, you guys remember this, he says, you heard that it was said, or you've heard that it was written, but I tell you it's this. And he was giving them a new interpretation of the law, the true meaning of the law. And that section in Matthew 5 through 7 finishes with this statement, much like what we're reading today. In Matthew 7, 28, it says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the Mount Olivet Discourse, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had, what's that word there? Authority and not as their scribes. It's the exact same statement. So Mark is trying to tell us in these sections that Jesus is king. But then a new character enters the scene there in Mark 1.21. He's teaching, and immediately there in the synagogue, verse 23, a man with an unclean spirit comes in. Now the lack of detailed context leaves us wondering why, how, how did this guy get here? We know that anyone deemed unclean because of the Torah would be removed from the gathering. They wouldn't even be part of it. So is this man sitting in the congregation all this time and now his true colors are showing? Or did this man walk in while Jesus is teaching to challenge him? Does it even matter? Mark is so succinct, and we'll see this throughout his gospel, that he gets you to think about all these details that are missing, but the reason they're missing is because they don't matter. Mark is trying to tell us and give us with this lack of information a focus on the fact that this unclean spirit was confronted and provoked by the teaching that Jesus was presenting about the kingdom of God. That's what matters. What he was teaching was not necessarily relevant. What matters is that we walk away with the knowledge that it was the very presence of Jesus teaching and showing and proclaiming the kingdom of God that causes this unclean spirit to respond in this negative way. It was as if the Spirit viewed this as an invasion of his dominion and his territory, and he's going to fight back. Having the Holy One of God, the Messiah, in your backyard, in your territory and land over which you have dominion, under the authority of the kingdom of darkness, was, in and of itself, cause for provocation and conflict. As the Holy One of God, as the Messiah, Jesus has the authority to teach and bring forward the truth of the kingdom. Nobody else did. The scribes didn't. The Pharisees didn't. Only Jesus. And his impact is so powerful and his teaching is so powerful that it actually provokes conflict with the kingdom of darkness. It's not just a regurgitation, but he's uttering it as the king himself. One commentator points out that through the use of the Greek words for preaching and teaching throughout Mark, Mark shows his emphasis that any of us can proclaim the kingdom, but at this point only the Messiah can truly teach with authority what that kingdom looks like because he alone can model it with every molecule of his being and every minute detail of his activity. The focus here is not on the teaching, and it will not be on the miracles or the exorcisms or the healings. Man, isn't it crazy how quick we get drawn to the party tricks? Oh, the, the miracle. That's what this is about, is the miracle. It's the exorcism and the healing. It's absolutely not. 
The focus is on Christ and his authority as king over the kingdom. And so how does this demonic spirit respond? By telling Jesus he knows who he is. You see, back in those days, there was this view that if you knew a spirit's name, you could have power over it. And so literally by the demon saying, I know who you are, he's jousting with him in the supernatural ways of the day. And this leads us to notice the conversation between them as conflict. And it leads us to the next point. This is our second point for this morning. As the Son of Man, Jesus has authority over all other kingdoms. Not only does he have the authority to teach the kingdom, but he has authority over all other kingdoms. We will see this title in the second section of our text today, the Son of Man. But our first section helps paint the picture of God at war against the powers of darkness. And Jesus' presence and teaching is so against the realm of which this spirit is a part that he responds in anger and fear, and so he should. The categorization of unclean means in Old Testament verbiage that this spirit is an enemy to the divine holiness of God. It doesn't just mean that he needed a bath. It meant that he was an enemy combatant of the most holy God. And Jesus came to proclaim example and eventually fully install the dominion of the Father. And the Spirit knows this and therefore views Jesus as hostile. You guys remember that night? Let's, let's pause for a second. I want you to think about Christmas for a second. Think about the fact that we're entering into Advent here. You guys remember that night um, where uh, it's referred to in the great hymns, right? The Christmas hymns where the shepherds are tending their sheep. And the angels show up and start singing. You guys probably all have the precious moments with the little cute chubby angels, right? Flapping their wings with the ah, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? You might have ornaments on your tree. You're like, oh, Jesus, the baby is so cute, right? Well, turn with me or look with me up on the screen at what it actually says. This is Luke 2, 13 through 14. And suddenly there was with the angel, the angel that had proclaimed to the shepherds that, that Jesus was here, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is blessed. That phrase, heavenly host, is far less a choir of children angels singing, and more likely a military force of buffed out, ready to invade angels. Heavenly host means the armies of heaven. We know this because one of the names of God in the Old Testament is Jehovah Tsevoot, which means the Lord of hosts, okay? And that is a military commanding officer proclamation. It's a title for the commander of the armies of heaven. Now, that might alter your, your view of your precious moments ornament a little bit, doesn't it? Right? Hans, you just ruined Christmas for me. No, I'm putting it in the proper perspective. Christmas was not a sweet little baby in a manger. Christmas was an invasion of the, by the kingdom of light of the kingdom of darkness. That's why we have hope. That's why light is such a big thing at Christmas. It's light invading the darkness. It was the prominent method of battle in those days for an army to put forward their strongest hero warrior to fight against the enemy's strongest warrior hero. Think of David and Goliath. You got massive armies standing there, and what do they do? They shove their hero up and they say, You guys battle and duke it out so we don't have to die. And the one that's victorious, well, he's won the war. The fight between these two would determine the outcome of the battle. So when Jesus was put forward against Hasatan in chapter one, 
You have David and Goliath, but not really. Jesus was the one that prevailed. He bound the strong man of the kingdom of darkness. Well, Hans, then why isn't everything better yet? Well, because he wounded him. He bound him so that he could start to pillage his kingdom, but he didn't completely destroy it yet. He didn't raise it to the ground. Now Jesus is face to face here in Mark with one of the soldiers of darkness. And what does he say? The demon says to him, what do you want with us? Have you come to destroy us? It's like one of the Israelites saying that to Goliath. You're so huge. You're going to destroy us. You have authority. Is that what you've come to do? Another similar rendering is, why are you interfering with us? Jesus was just teaching. You see, the Spirit understands more than the witnesses looking on, and he knows that this is primarily an issue of authority and warfare. Notice that Jesus does not have to use spiritual props or incantations or repetitions. Instead, he merely commands and the Spirit complies. This is so powerful that the crowd says, what is this? with the emphasis more likely of, who is this guy? He gives a new teaching and backs it up with authority, and even the unclean spirits obey him. It's so astounding that the word of it spreads like wildfire across Galilee. Now, we immediately assume that this man is full of a multitude of demons because he says us, and we associate this with the story of the demons named Legion in another gospel story. But multiple commentators agree that more likely this demon is speaking on behalf of all demons. He's saying, we, the kingdom of darkness, know you have been sent to destroy us because that is the point of the Holy Messiah. That is the point of the Holy One of God. And so four times, Mark will use this theme of exorcism to show the authority of Christ, that the king reigns. This becomes such a hallmark of Jesus' authority that the scribes, as we saw a week before last, will start accusing Jesus of being on the side of the adversary, and that is why he is able to cast out demons. Guys, it's all about kingdoms, kings, and authority. But you see, that's not the case. Jesus isn't on the side of the demons. So then the question raises, where does Jesus get the power to have authority over all the kingdoms, including the kingdom of darkness? Isn't he just a man? Isn't he just a great teacher like the world says? No, there's something far more. And this is where we look to our second text today in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. After some itinerant ministry where Jesus is moving around Galilee, healing and preaching, as we'll see in the next couple weeks, Jesus returns back to Capernaum and he begins teaching again in in Mark 2, 1. And the crowd is so large looking for his teaching and healing that he's pressed into the corner of the home. He's surrounded, if you will. Four friends bring their fifth friend, a man paralyzed, and they crawl up on this sloping flat roof that was made of crossbeams from tree limbs and overlaid with mattings of branches and reeds and palms and dried mud. And they pull it apart enough to be able to lower down their friend. And you have to wonder what Jesus thought as he is sitting there in the corner. You see, back then, everyone else would stand and the teacher would sit. I kind of like that. Go ahead, guys. Stand up. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. So he's sitting there in the corner and all of a sudden stuff starts dripping from the ceiling. What's going on? And all of a sudden a hole opens up and this man is lowered down. And Jesus was so moved by the faith of the friends that he tells the man, son, your sins are forgiven. The scribes immediately challenge him, and so Jesus responds and says this interesting phrase in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Pause right there. 
Jesus sees himself and refers to himself as the Son of Man. And this title has not been used yet, and it will not be used again until Mark 8, the climax of the book, after Peter says, you are the Son of God. And then the Son of Man is brought back in. And there Jesus will call himself that because it's used as a title to answer the question of where Jesus is getting his authority. Turn with me back to where Ryan was reading from earlier to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is another book that rather than focusing on the main thing, we use it, the church uses it, especially in the last 150 years, to worry about the timeline of when the rapture is going to happen and when Jesus is returning, and that's what we focus on. And the reality is, is that's not what Daniel's about. Daniel's about what we're going to talk about right now. Just FYI, we're told very clearly in the Gospels, how much worry we should put into the times and the seasons and when Jesus returns. And the answer is what? Don't. <laughs> Nobody knows the day or the hour. Stop worrying about it. That's why we don't spend a ton of time on, on when the timeline is going to be, right? Okay, so Daniel chapter 7. We have this beast who rises up, and he's this authority. That's why he's called a horn. A horn was a symbol of authority in those days. And it says in verse 9 of Daniel 7, As I looked, thrones were placed. What are thrones symbols of? They're symbols of kingdoms and authorities, right? And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. Who's the Ancient of Days? God, right? He is the Father, okay? His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Do you think you'd be feeling a little bit submitted if you saw a throne like that? Absolutely. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousands, a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. What are we talking about here? We're talking about authority. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Okay, so this is the leader of the kingdom that's against God, who's in authority. This is Hasatan, the adversary in Hebrew. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And for the rest of the beast, their dominion, that's another authority word, was taken away. Okay, these beasts were powerful beings over dominions, over kingdoms, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a, what's that say? Son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to this son of man, was given, what's that word? Dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So David, he stands up and he's freaked out, he's anxious, his spirit is worried, and the visions in his head alarmed him. And he says in verse 16, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth, one of the angels, concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These beasts are kings who rise out of the earth and run nations, okay? Because behind every nation, as we've taught in the past, is a spiritual being that is against the eventual rule of Christ, including our own. I hate to say that. I know there's nationalists in the room. I'm not being anti-patriotic. But the reality is, is earthly nations are against the power of the king. Okay? And then he says in verse 18, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. 
This is a prophetic vision had by the prophet Daniel, describing the eventual fullness of the kingdom of God, that the reign of the king of God over all creation will be restored one day in which his people will find peace. But until then, the kingdom of darkness will spawn other nations and kingdoms, which at their core are contrary to Yahweh and his reign. And the conclusion, though, is that all nations, including our own, will one day bow the knee to the true king of kings and lord of lords. You see why I don't worry that much about elections? Hans, it's terrible to say. No, it's true. Vote for who you're going to vote for, but recognize our kingdom's going to fall. And praise God, be replaced by the true king. Jesus has the authority because the father, the ancient of days, gave it to him. Jesus is set apart from all other humans because he alone is both 100% man and 100% God. He alone is the Messiah. He alone has authority over all kingdoms. And this is where we see what it's talking about in Mark. And we see our last point that will be covered here in Mark chapter 2. You can go back there to Mark chapter 2. And what we're going to see is that not only is he God's agent in incarnate form, but he is, in fact, God incarnate. Daniel breaks them apart as two different characters in order to speak of two people of the Trinity, right? The Father and the Son. The Ancient of Days and his agent, his Messiah. But the reality is, is what Jesus is saying here in Mark chapter 2 and what it shows in Daniel is that in reality, they are the same authority and the same power. As God incarnate, Jesus has authority to forgive our sins. If Jesus was simply a great healer, an exerciser of demons, that would be kind of cool, but we'd still all be dead in our sin and lost in our transgressions, right? And the reason is, is because our sins are not just things that need to be fixed by a healer. It's not just because we have a demon in us that needs to be exercised. It's because our sins were against the holy creator God, the holy ancient of days, from whom we have been divided because of our rebellion and our refusal to obey him. And so just as many people today, these four friends in Mark chapter 2 wanted the tangible healing here and now, and quite honestly, who can blame them? We think, well, they didn't bring their friend for forgiveness of sins, Jesus. What are you doing? But in those days, the worldview was such that the two couldn't be separated. You couldn't separate sickness and sin. Now think of this story from John 9 one through two. You guys probably have read this before. It says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This still progresses now, right? And it's a false notion. We know scientifically it's a false notion, right? And so a lot of times because of our scientific mind, we say, see, it has nothing to do with sin because that's stupid. Somebody doesn't just get, you know, sick or have, you know, physical difficulties, or when Kelly and I were going through miscarriages, it's not, we weren't getting, having miscarriages because we were sinning, but it's still a result of sin, not our own necessarily, or someone who's done something against us, but it's because we're in a fallen, broken world. We're in a creatorless creation, so to speak. We're separated from the origin of health and healing and life. And so these guys, they wanted their friend healed, and in their minds, healing and forgiveness went together, and we see that echoed throughout even our psalm this morning in Psalm 103, where it says that God forgives all of our iniquities and heals all of our diseases. 
And what does Jesus do? He forgives the man's sins, fully knowing that while he will heal his body, there is a greater need to heal his sin. But the scribes freak out. They say, you can't forgive sin. Only one can do that, God alone. The same statement in another gospel uses the Greek word monos, God alone, monos, the one God. And it harkens back to the idea in the great Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's a very clear statement by Mark here. He's letting the scribes say there's only one God and Jesus doesn't fight them on it. He basically says, okay, you're right. Let me show you why I'm that God. What does Jesus do? He forgives his sins fully knowing that while he will heal the body, again, he has the greater need. And so Jesus says, while those are listening in, he says that I am the one spoken of by Daniel the prophet, that you will know that I am the one that will establish God's kingdom for all eternity. I will show you that I have the power to both forgive sin and heal its effects. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus knew that while all sickness is not consequence of sin, it is the effect of being in that world overcome by sin. And this story establishes for you and for me, as the hearer of the good news, that we have a firmly founded hope. It firmly states that the chaos we see before us in our own country and the rest of the world will not prevail. It firmly gives us a hope that those who belong to a kingdom that wished to kill and destroy and murder. Saw another terrorist activity over in London this weekend. More people got killed. That will not stand. It will come to an end. Jesus, when he rules and reigns in fullness, will bring all of this chaos to an end. And on a personal level, it declares for us that God the Father has given his authority to Jesus so that he might forgive your sin and mine. As a good, righteous, and just king, Jesus forgives us our sin. Jesus conquered the adversary who had us in his grasp and pulled us captive into his kingdom of light. But being a just and perfect and righteous God, he knew that he could not leave our debt of sin unpaid. He could not leave our injustice undone. And so Jesus, as the king, already having defeated Satan there in the temptation, he freely sacrifices himself on the cross of Calvary to redeem our unclean souls and bring us into fullness of reconciliation with the Father. And three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, proving that his kingdom reign was in place. His death blow to Satan was complete, it may be a slow death, but it was complete. And his people were victorious. You see, we look for the blessed hope of Jesus' second advent because we know it will complete what he started with his first. As God incarnate and as our substitution on the cross, Jesus alone has the authority to forgive us our sins. But he has been given that throne specifically for that purpose by the Father that loves you so dearly. And he has called you to sit under his reign. Dear brother, dear sister, have you surrendered to his authority? Have you declared him Lord and King of your life? If you're a visitor here today or if you're a person sitting in here and you do not know if that's true, I would love to offer to you time with the elders that are standing in the back during our second worship set 
And they would love to pray with you and talk with you about what it is to submit your life to Jesus as his disciple. And they would love to talk with you. And so we look at Mark 1 and Mark 2, and we have seen the authority of Jesus so beautifully proclaimed in these two sections. Now the question for us is, how does this relate practically? You might say, Hans, you teach about Jesus as king a lot lately. That's here in the text. What, what do we need to do? We're, we're already following Jesus. We're already his disciples. But that's where I want to finish this morning. And don't think you're getting off scot-free. I'm probably going to take the entire rest of the time here. So, okay. I want to finish with a question this morning for us. And that is this. How do we practically live in submission to the authority of Jesus as king? How do we practically live in submission to the authority of Jesus as king? And I want to put a little caveat on this before I step into this, because I know that this is going to press buttons, because guess what? It's talking about authority, and we are Americans. We're not under authority to anybody, right? And so I want you to do your best, and I'm begging you as your pastor and your friend, please know that I'm your friend, loving you and speaking this to you, that this is for our good. And so do your best to open your hearts to what I'm about to say before you put up walls. How do we practically live in submission to the authority of Jesus as king? This Christmas, many of us will sing about Christ as king, and yet so few actually live in a way that proclaims he is king. How do we do this practically each day? Now, some over the course of time have read these sections we just went through in Mark and thought, man, this is all about miracles. That's how we show that Jesus is our king. As long as we have enough faith and we go out there and preach miracles and do healings and smack people on the head and make them fall backwards, man, then we will know that Jesus is king. But what we've just learned is that the issue here is that faith in large part, the Greek word pistis means faithfulness, is in large part, if not most part, submission to the authority of Jesus. This is why Paul says in the beginning of Romans, chapter 1, he says, my whole job is to bring about the obedience of the faith, okay? And it begins with being students of God's word. If we're his followers, if we sit under his reign and his rule, then we are going to be students of his word, amen? If you're not a person who digs into his word to understand it and allow it to integrate into your life and internalize it, then most likely you don't sit under his reign. That's just the reality of it. And so I would challenge you this week to delve back in, press yourself to do so. But let's go past that a little bit. You might say, okay, Hans, you talk about time, talents, and treasure. We know that we give a tribute to the king through our treasure, treasures, and, and we as a church use that to steward the kingdom of God as best we can. And we give our time coming to church, and we give our talent and serving. Yes, those are all true too. And if those are not present in your life, if you're a person that's a consumer and you never serve, and you never give of your tithe and offering. I would say, how do you know Jesus is your king if he's not king over your finances and your time? We've gone over those before, right? Amen? Amen? Okay. But look with me a little bit further. Go with me to Matthew 8, 5. Take a look there. Matthew 8, 5. Many of you have read this before. This is the story of the centurion whose servant is sick. So Matthew 8, 5, it says, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, and centurion uh, is an officer in the Roman army, okay, a Gentile, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him, Jesus did. 
But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, why would he say that? Authority. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under, what's that word? Authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, boy, you're kind of arrogant. No, he didn't. He didn't chastise him at all. In fact, what did he say? When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such, what's that word there? Faith. That's a different faith, isn't it? It's saying, Jesus, you're the king and you have power. You have authority. You can do whatever you please. Man, even the Israelites don't get that, Jesus says. You a Gentile, you get that. How's that? That's crazy. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the, what's that word? Kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom, the ones that are supposed to understand Jesus as king, the sons of the kingdom, the Israelites, will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. The testament of faith that Jesus accounts to the centurion is not that he believed Jesus could heal. That's almost secondary. But that he knew Jesus was such an authority that he could proclaim any command at any time from any distance and it would be obeyed. His faith is that Jesus is the king of the world, the king of the kingdom, and he has authority. But we can't see God the Father, nor can we see the Son. So you might say, how on earth are we supposed to worship him as king? We don't, we don't have his throne. We can't bow down before him. How are we supposed to do this, Hans? Jesus isn't with us. But what God did is he placed certain institutions on earth to which we could be submitted. You see, all authority is Jesus' authority. To be under spiritual authority of Christ is to be under the practical institutions he put in place. And this is where we start to get rubbed, okay? Trust me. The first is the civil authorities under which we live, law enforcement, the government. Now, many of us in this room might go, no, Hans, what are you doing telling us? that we have to agree with everything, submission does not always mean agreement. Go with me to Romans chapter 13. Take a look at Romans 13 with me. And recognize that Paul was writing this to the church at Rome under one of the worst Caesars, the most awful Caesars ever to exist, that was persecuting Christians. Romans 13.1 says, Let every person... Be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. See, I didn't make that up. I read it right there. And those that exist have been instituted by God. You might cry out right now, Hans, I don't believe that God put Trump in place. Trump does. He believes that, right? Many of his followers do. But here's the reality. The Bible says God put Nebuchadnezzar in place in order to carry out certain things. And then guess what? He punished Nebuchadnezzar for his refusal to obey. He used broken men to do certain things, and then he punished them for the fact that they weren't actually fully obedient to him. But he used them as a tool in the meantime. So yes, Trump may not actually be a follower of Christ, Judeo-Christian, but God is using him. So guess what? Even if we disagree with him and disagree with him as a person and disagree with his character and disagree with his policies, we pray for him, don't we? And we pray for the government, don't we? 
We pray for our mayor. We pray for our governor. We pray for our Senate. We pray for our House of Representatives, even if we think they are some of the worst crooks in the history of mankind. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, it says, verse 2, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. I can't tell you how many Christians I've run into over the years. I shouldn't have to pay all these taxes. You have no idea what the taxes were that they had to pay in those days. They make today look like nothing. Well, I'm, a, I'm submitted to the king, but man, I can hardly wait to figure out this tax loophole so I can get more for myself in my own kingdom. Is that submission to the king? No, it's not. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. You see, if we don't like our government, we operate within the boundaries of the democratic process to change it. We can protest. We can vote people out. But meanwhile, we pray for our leaders. We submit to our law enforcement. It blows my mind. I talked to a couple of the people in here that are law enforcement. I just can't even believe in a city like Salem where everybody says they're Christian that they have to deal with as many knuckleheads as they do. Cop pulls you over. You say, yes, sir, may I have another? Because you are submitted to authority right? What if they're wrong? Then pray that the Lord deals with it. You stay respectful. Meanwhile, we pray for our leaders. We pray for our lawyers. We pray for the people that they instate laws that don't go against the Father. And if they go against the Father, then we stand in respect and submission and say, I will not follow you because I have a higher authority. But we submit to the, the state and to the government. The second is we submit within the authorities of the family. Everybody turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. Give me an amen when you get there. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Again, ladies, this does not mean that if you're in a domestic abuse situation, you just keep on taking those hits right? You need to come talk to us as elders, and we will safely help you remove yourself from that situation. We will help your husband figure out that he needs to submit to his king. So this isn't a catch-all, just do whatever they say, right? If you're getting in an emergency situation and a cop is beating you, right? A police officer is beating you, you have the right to kind of hold back, right? To curl up, to, to fight back in a sense, right? But most police officers aren't going to do that, right? So this isn't saying carte blanche, you know, just be abused. What it's saying is, is submit to the authority and do everything within your power to respect them. And husbands, just so you don't think that this is all about the wives submitting to your fantastic leadership, right? Look at what it says next in verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children. See again, mutual submission. Dads, you can't just be authoritative jerks, authoritarian jerks. You need to make it so that your children follow you and love you and want to follow you. Notice that there's mutual submission and mutual honoring. Wives to husbands, husbands to wives, children to parents, parents to children. The third is the authority for those we work for. 
Again, I can't tell you how many times I've heard Christians, my boss is a jerk. He doesn't have any clue what he's doing. If I ran the place, I'd do a really good job. Yeah, maybe your boss is a jerk and maybe you would do better, but is that the heart of one submitted to authority? Not at all. Look at what it says here. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That's not a statement that's just ambiguous. That's saying as you serve and submit under authority in earthly relationships, who are you really submitting to? Jesus. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving, in those cases, the Lord Christ. And if you have a terrible boss or a terrible president or, you know, a terrible husband or a terrible father. Look at verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. It's not your job to fix that situation. Then masters are called to, meanwhile, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You see, again, that mutual submission thing and how it's all under the authority of Christ. You guys see what's going on here? How do we submit to the authority of God? We submit to the earthly incarnate authorities he's put in place. Notice the reason we're under authority, because in being under these earthly authorities, we are actually serving Christ. And what do we do if those who, to whom we submit aren't the greatest? We trust that the Lord will deal with it. But we've missed one, and possibly the most important one. There's another institution that Christ deputized to carry with it his authority. Let's look at three quick scriptures here. First, take a look up at the screen. This is John 19 through 23. Remember the freak out that the scribes had? There's only one who has the power to forgive sins, and that's God. And then we say, that's awesome. Jesus is God, so he can forgive sins as well. So there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They, the Trinity, they forgive, right? That's where it stops. And so I only have to be submitted to God. Well, look at what Jesus says in John 19 through 23. After his resurrection on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, were in fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord Jesus. When they saw the Lord, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What did he just do? He deputized. He gave us authority. The church. Wait a minute, Hans. I don't like where this is going. Matthew 16. Peter confesses him as the Christ, and in Matthew 16, 18, he says to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's talking about the church here. I will give you, Peter, as the lead of the disciples, the beginning of the church, the beginning authority of the church, I will give you the keys, a sign of authority, of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay, so this was for just the apostles, right? This was just for Peter and his apostles. No, this is where, turn with me to Matthew 18. 
Everybody turn to Matthew 18 with me. And we'll see that it wasn't just for the apostles. It was for the church. Take a look at Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Matthew 18, 15 through 20, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So who is it that's supposed to go initiate this contact? Is it the person who's sinning or the person who's been sinned against? Right, so if you're a person who's been sinned against or been harmed by someone else in this church, it is your responsibility in obedience and submission to your king to go to the person who's harmed you to work it out. Does that make sense? Okay. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And guess what? If there aren't other witnesses, then you don't have a charge. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That's the whole congregation. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, removed from the kingdom. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, notice this is not talking about a prayer circle. If two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Guys, this is one of the scariest passages in Scripture. It is not touchy-feely, hey, we're praying, so Jesus is with us. This is when the authority of the congregation comes together to convict a brother or sister of sin, God is sitting on his throne ready to pass judgment. Changes your view of that Scripture, doesn't it? So what is this saying? Well, I want to submit to you that Jesus granted us, the church, not just the elders of the church or the apostles of the church, but the church by his Holy Spirit. He granted us a deputized authority and called us to differentiate ourselves, not by performing miracles, not by casting out demons, but by being a people wholly submitted to one another in unity of purpose and a common law of sacrificial love. That's why Paul can say in Ephesians to each one of us as members within the church, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Read this last part with me. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. As you submit to one another, it's actually showing reverence for who? Are you following Christ as king? Are you? then you're submitting to one another, showing reverence to one another. Now, guys, I want to be honest with you. I know that the church has long abused this. And I know that many of you in here have been abused by the church, have been abused in, in places by your family, have been abused by authority. You look at the idea of authority, and it is trauma city for you. 
you are like, no way in heck am I ever going to submit myself to another person and put myself in a position where they can have authority over me. And I get it. But the reality is, is that's not how it works. The solution for misuse is not disuse, but proper use. And so how do we do this? How do we submit ourselves to authority in a way that shows glory to God? Well, we do it by submitting to one another in the institutions God's put in place. Does that make sense? Did I, did I hammer that home well enough? By submitting to one another in earthly relationships, we show if Christ is our king. And this is why you see it's so hard for me to say that a person who will not submit to anyone, will not submit to a church and is just wandering around saying, Jesus is my king, quite honestly, I think is full of hooey. They don't read their Bibles. So Hans, how do we do this? How do we get to that place? Because even though, dear church, you guys have done a fantastic job in so many ways over the last two years, a lot of the little stuff is what kills us. As pastor, it breaks my heart when I hear people over in the corner talking about somebody else and something that bothered them, and I, I want to go over and be like, did you go talk to him? Because guess what? If Jesus is your king, that's what you do. Hans, that's sarcastic. I know. <laughs> you go talk to him. You don't sit and get bitter and upset and frustrated and passive-aggressive. You go talk to him. If we can't do that, church, we should close our mouth and not evangelize because we are not showing the kingdom. So Hans, how do we do this? What practical suggestions? Well, you can just listen and write down which ones of these really hit home for you. Number one, man, start a daily practice of gratitude in prayer for God's authority and correction through other believers. Every day, God, I know you have stuff to teach me today. Please open my heart and help me to be thankful for when I am corrected by other brothers and sisters. Start a daily practice of gratitude and prayer for God's correction through other faithful believers. And again, write down which ones hit you. Number two, regularly reaffirm your commitment to the body under whose authority you have submitted. If you're not a member of this church, man, are you going to step under authority? Not to me, not to the elders, but to the entire body. Submission to your brothers and sisters, fulfilling Ephesians 5. And if you are a member, when was the last time you read through the covenant to hold yourself accountable to it? Read through the covenant promises you have made to your brothers and sisters at least prior to every congregational meeting. And do regular introspection on if you are keeping up your end of the bargain on those commitments. Regularly reaffirm your commitment to the body under whose authority you've submitted. Third, make it a practice to regularly ask for input from mature believers about, write this down, how they experience you and in what areas they think you can grow. Don't wait for us to come to you. See, those of us that have been walking with Christ a long time, we realize people don't want unasked for advice. I don't. Do you? You want me to walk in your home and be like, change this, change that, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong? I'm happy to start doing that if you guys want it. <laughs> no? Okay. I didn't think so. So we need to ask each other proactively, hey, how are you experiencing me? If you've noticed a pattern throughout your life that people are kind of 
off, you know, put off by you, maybe you should go ask some people, hey, I've noticed people are kind of put off by me. What do I need to change in order to make myself more attractive? Not physically, but personally, right? Don't wait for them to come to you. Go to them and ask, how do you experience me? And then be willing to put in work to change. Number four, make up your mind to submit to specific mature Christian men and women before you need to do it. I would hope that in this church, you can look to our elders and other leaders for that purpose. We also have other fantastically mature and experienced believers who are not necessarily an elder, but who've had years of experience. Find those people, submit to them, ask them how they experience you, and make your mind up to do it before. You see, I have a rule. When one of my brothers that are elders come to me and say, Hans, there is a problem, I don't defend, I don't fight, I close my mouth and I listen, even if I don't like what they're saying, because that's me under submission. And I would hope that they would do the same. Number five, make sure it's a priority to be in relational community with people to whom you can submit. If you find that no matter where you look, you can't seem to find someone worth submitting to, I just, I just can't seem to find anybody that is going to be able to lead me then you need to look within yourself and ask the question why that is. I'm so excited. We just joined this new group. Kelly and I and the kids are going to the Rouse House, and I'm super excited to get to know Lyle and Heather because I want them to be involved in my life to the point where Lyle can come alongside me if he sees me mistreating my wife and put an arm around me and say, Brother, you doing all right? How's it going in your marriage? Right? Enter into relationships with people so that you can find ways to submit. Number six, be purposeful in listening to anyone's critique without defensiveness. Raise your hand if this sounds hard. Amen. I am the chiefest of sinners on this one, and it's taken a lot of work for me to even get to a place where I am not about ready to defend the second somebody comes up to say something to me. But many of you who were loving to me early on, years ago, came to me and said, hey, if you can't take critique, maybe you should not be a pastor. And I agree with you, right? You may disagree with the person who's bringing critique to you, but you need to at least hear from them before you defend. If you find that no one ever challenges or corrects you, you might want to start asking the question why that is. It might be because people have tried and you haven't listened, and so they've given up. If you're a person that gets corrected often, that's probably a pretty good sign because that means you've opened up the door for people to come and talk with you. I must be doing really well. <laughs> I get lots of correction. I'm kidding. Verse 7. When, or verse 7, number 7, there we go, thanks. When wronged, submit to Christ's command and go to the person that has wronged you to seek reconciliation. If you don't do that, then brother or sister, it is your responsibility to own that issue rather than letting it cause roots of bitterness and contempt or gossip. If you haven't gone to them and you haven't worked it out, then you got to take the responsibility of dealing with that issue. Dear brothers and sisters, the question for you today is, are you participating in the heavy responsibility of submitting your lives to one another as the body of Christ on earth? If Christ is king and his word is authoritative in our lives as Christians, then he has given his earthly authority into the hands of his people 
And we show our submission to Christ by our submission to one another. Because the model Christ gave us is that our verbal proclamation of the gospel is only as good as our life that evidences that we are part of the kingdom reign of Christ, living under the authority of the king in the kingdom of God. It's only as good as that. It's a tough teaching today. It's a heavy one. It's hard for many of us who have been harmed by authority or many of us who don't trust other people. But the reality is, is that the solution for misuse is not disuse, it's proper use. So let's be a church that redeems this idea of authority and does it in a way where it's mutually benefiting, mutually loving, and all underneath the authority reign of Jesus Christ.